Good morning, everyone, and happy Father's Day. It's it's good to be in the house of the Lord. I am <clears throat> good to have Brother Tyler back and have as many people here as we do this morning. It, it's it's good, and uh, I've I've had a good week this past week. And I hope all of you have too. We are studying in the book of Acts, <clears throat> and our brother Paul it was there, and he'd just come out of uh, Philippi, and uh, in rather fine fashion, the Lord brought him out of Philippi, as the He'd been thrown in jail there, and they didn't realize he was a Roman citizen. They beat him openly in public, and they threw him in jail and kept him there. And He and Silas both were in stocks, and God brought an earthquake and brought the building down, shook, all, shook the doors all open, and... and shook the stocks off of Paul and Silas, too, inside the prison. And certainly the jailer was fearful for his life, but he asked the right question when he came to Paul. And Paul said, we're all here. But the jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? (laughs) That's the right question. And certainly he was... He knew that it was God that had opened that jail. And the fact that they were all there was was amazing to him. He thought all of them had escaped and he was going to lose his life to the Roman government for having let them escape. But they showed him the way of salvation and not only was he saved, but all of his household, his family. I don't know, maybe other jailers that were there. I don't know how, what, how many people were in his household but they were all saved. And they came to know the Lord. And and then the magistrates, the people who had put him in that jail, uh, said, oops, we made a big mistake. He's a Roman citizen. And we beat him without a trial, threw him in jail without a trial. And they were worried. And they said, oh, well, you can go. You can go now. And Paul said, uh-uh, not, not so. You come down and you take us out publicly. So the magistrates had to come down and ask him to please, wouldn't you kindly leave Philippi? Uh, we're, we're, you're, You've caused enough trouble here is basically the idea that they were saying, but they didn't say it in that way, I'm sure. And I, we're going to be looking here into chapter 17 now. And after God had released Paul and Silas from prison by a, an earthquake and saved their, his, the jailer's family and all of this, uh, the, they, Paul... 
reason with the Jews for the um, for several consecutive Sabbaths in the next town that he went to. And I want to I want us to look at this map. It's in chapter 17. It tells kind of his itinerary here. He says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. So they passed through a couple of towns that didn't have synagogues. And then they stopped at Thessalonica, which had a synagogue. Now these towns, I want us to look at the map. This Okay, these, these towns are right here. Here's Philippi, and here's Thessalonica. But Apollonia and the other little town there are right across here. And this, across the top of, this is the, this is the Aegean Sea right here. And right across the top of it, up here, are the little towns that he went to. And Derby is back up in here. Uh, up above Thessalonica, just a little ways, but these—that's about 50 or 60 miles across there, about the distance from Wahanda to Pueblo, to give you an idea. And all these little towns, whether it's Swink and Rocky Ford and, and Fowler and Manzanola—all all of these were sprinkled along the road there. Okay, and. We'll notice, uh, well, we'll get to that. Oh, that gives you an idea of the, the distance that they traveled here. So they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia from Philippi, okay? And they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went into them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the scriptures. So he took the Old Testament scriptures and was reasoning with these Jews, telling them about Jesus, telling them how Jesus had to suffer and die, how he had to rise again on the third day, how all of this was prophesied in many, many of the uh, writings of the prophets. And whether it was Isaiah or Amos or or Daniel or whoever, he he said these are right here in the Old Testament scriptures, right down the line. And he reasoned with them. Uh, op- and he was this verse three is interesting. He, he opening and alleging that Christ indeed. Uh, Christ must need have suffered and risen again from the dead and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ, is the very Christ, the Messiah that we have been looking for, that all Jews have been looking for. This is him. He's the one, I'm announcing that he has come and the world is changed because of him. And This is what he told these Jewish people there in the synagogue. And that's why he went to the synagogues first. To give them a chance to hear. 
and to see from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, is indeed the Christ, the chosen one of God, the one that God chose to be the savior of mankind, all mankind. Okay. And some of them believed. And they joined Paul. They consorted with Paul and Silas. And of the devout Greeks, a a great multitude. And of the chief women, not a few. So it wasn't just the Jews. Other there were other believers in God that were that were not Jewish. They didn't have the Jewish heritage, but they believed in God. And they came to the synagogue to hear about God and to listen. And we'll see this quite often. Even here in Greece. Now this uh when they when Paul had that vision, he said and the Macedonian says, come over and help us. Where is Macedonia today on today's map? What is the country? It's Greece. Macedonia and Achaia, which is the lower part of, of the country of Greece. <coughs> Pardon me, I've got a, got a catch in my throat here this morning. But anyway, they, uh, some of them believed and, and joined Paul. They became Christians. They believed. And so here at Thessalonica, this is the beginning of the church where the letter to, of Thessalonians was written to. Okay. And notice in the last part of that verse 4, that not only were there a great multitude of Greeks that were believers, that were saved, but it mentions also the notable women. And women in the Greek society had a place. They were, they had almost two societies that lived parallel to each other and side by side. There was a, the woman's society and a men's society. And the Greek men respected their women, all of them, almost without uh, exception in Greece. There was that, there was their type of, uh, of how, how do you say that? Their, their type of society. And, uh, you know, we see some that are matriarchal and some are patriarchal. But theirs was more of an egalitarian society. But they, they had separate and I would say almost equal responsibilities. There were different responsibilities, but he notes here that the women were, were important too. He, he says not a few. There, there were a good number of women also that came and became Christian. And, and we'll see that all throughout the Greek area there. But the Jews, this is verse 5, he says, But the Jews which believed not, moved with envy, took unto them 
certain lewd fellows of the baser sort and gathered a company and set the city on in an uproar. They gathered a mob of fellows that could get the rabble-rousers, if you will. They came and, and they stirred up the whole city. And they were yelling and causing problems and and they started this uproar and they set all the city on an uproar and assaulted the house of Jason and and sought to bring them out to the people. Sought to bring out Paul and Silas and Timothy out to the people. Now, this was like a lynch mob. This was not a uh, a gathering of the people, as they called it here. But they were out to get them. And, and this was the intent of the Jews. That's why they chose these people for the mob. These, um, how'd they say it? The baser, of the baser sort here. Uh, lewd fellows. That, these were not nice people that they gathered together. Of the baser sort. And when they found them not, they drew Jason and certain, uh, certain brethren unto the rulers of the city, crying, These that have turned the world upside down are come hither also, whom Jason hath received, and these all do contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, one Jesus, now, I don't know that they proclaimed king, but the Jews said they, they had. Of course, when Jesus was crucified, the sign under him in three different languages said the king of the Jews. He was hung under that, on that crucifix, on that cross with that under his, as his title, his accusa- accusation of why he was there. Well, they're saying the, they're claiming Jesus as a king. And rightly so he is. But at this point, that was sedition against the Roman government. And so they're saying this Jason. Now, I'm not sure who Jason is, by the way. I couldn't find him in looking to see who, but he was one of the brethren, obviously. And there were other brethren that had received Paul and Silas and Timothy. And this, this mob hauled them before the magistrates and said, they're, these are people that have received these uh, rebel, and they were accusing Paul and Silas of stirring up the people and being against Caesar and putting Caesar's uh, rule to, to, to not, to nothing, saying that Jesus was the king. Well, that was their accusation. I don't know that Paul and Silas had done any, said anything of the kind. They were saying that Jesus came and did away with the law of the Jews, and the Jews were upset about that. But he didn't actually do away with it. He fulfilled that law. 
he was the sacrifice that the law looked forward to when they sacrificed sheep and oxen and, and birds and, and gave grain. All of this, all of their sacrifices looked forward to Jesus. And this is what Paul was alleging and showing the Jews that all, of, all through the law, Jesus was the one that was the one they were looking forward to. But they took Jason and they, they and several others and they threw them in jail. And, and when they had taken security of Jason and of the other, they let them go. What does that mean they took security? They had to post a bail bond in order to be released. And so they probably took out a big loan and doesn't say whether they ever got anything back from it or not. But the government says, we want some money to let you go. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea. So Paul and Silas, they said, Go to you get over here to Berea. Get out, get out of the, out of Thessalonica. Um, who coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. So they, this was their pattern. They went to the synagogue of the Jews there at Berea, but they were received there. We'll see that. These were more noble than those at Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and search the scriptures daily whether those things were so. They said, let's look at this. They were open-minded to serving God. They wanted to serve God with their hearts and the right way. And this is the difference between those at Thessalonica and, and these. They were separated by maybe five, or, five to seven miles it wasn't that far away. But they, these people were open-minded and served God. They, they desired to know more. They searched the scriptures daily. So that he was there for several days before the people at Thessalonica found him. And that made a big difference, that they searched the scriptures. They had a readiness of mind. You know, that... Sometimes we get set in a, a thought pattern. We aren't ready to receive uh, differences. We don't want to have change in our life. And we want things all settled and, and everything to be going along just the way it always has. I know I've heard people say, well, it's just the way we've always done things. We need to get our own minds more flexible, to serve God the way he wants, not the way we want. When things are all settled and, and everything's going the way we think they ought to, maybe we need a change. Maybe we need to have open minds to serve God the way he wants Amen. rather than the way we want. Eh, you know, that's that makes a big difference. And these here are, at Thessalonica, we're not ready to do that. But the ones in Derby, 
were. And, and they were just a few miles, separated by a few miles. And so, okay, there, verse 12, Therefore many of them believed also of honorable women, which were Greeks, and of men, not a few. So there were, the Greeks were ready to receive this. The believing Greeks were ready to receive Jesus as the Savior. Many of the Jews were not. And especially those of the leadership of the Jews. But here we see again, the women and the men both received Jesus. The, these Greeks did. But when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came together also and stirred up the people. So they brought their mob over here to Berea and stirred up trouble there. The same way. They weren't going to let Paul go. They were out to get him. And they intended to do that. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still. So they stayed behind there in Berea. And they were protected by the brethren. But they sent Paul down to the sea coast to, to get away. They said, this is, he's the one that they really want to kill because he's the spokesman. He was a spokesman for this group. And so they sent him away down to the seacoast. Well, the seacoast was where they, they found a boat of some kind, some kind of a, a boat. We, I'm not sure what kind of a boat it was. It was in, but their seacoast was interesting. That Aegean Sea is a very shallow sea. And it has lots and lots of little tiny islands. Many of them are not inhabited, but they're there. And if you're going by boat along that coast, you have to dodge these little islands and look out for shallow water and that sort of thing. And you have the boat was probably driven by wind or oars, one or the other, or, or a combination of the two. They didn't have motorboats back then, or jet skis, or that kind of thing. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have a lot of things that we have. So it took a while for them to travel. By boat, it was a lot faster than by land. But that Aegean Sea is not an easy coast to navigate. Well, let's, uh, let's see. And they immediately, and then immediately the brethren sent Paul to go, as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timothy stayed there. They abode there still. And they that conducted Paul brought him unto Athens. And receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy, Timotheus, to come to him with all speed, they departed. Okay, so they took him to Athens. Now, they've been going these little towns along here, along the upper part of, northern part of the Aegean, 
And you'll see that they came, uh, they were up here, okay? And Berea is over in here. Actually, it's probably up a little bit north of where they show it here. But it, they were up here and they went down to the seacoast and they brought them down this way, clear down here to Athens. Here's Athens over here. Well, it's right there. And so they had to come around this Long Island, come around down here and back up into here. That's 200 miles. That's like the distance from here to Denver. But they did this through these little islands. And depending on which way the wind was blowing that particular day, you had to navigate through those islands. Took them a while. And they, they escorted Paul clear to Athens, 200 miles away. They said, you've got all these people after you, trying to kill you. We're going to get you out of here clear 200 miles away, where they're not going to hear from you. They didn't have cell phones either, by the way. Didn't, didn't have telephone communication. And it was by people coming from a place that you got news from that place. So when they took Paul away from Berea and Thessalonica, they took him 200 miles away. They figured, well, they won't find him here. So we'll, we'll get him safe to Athens. Well, I don't know how long it took them to get him to Athens. And then Paul sent word with those people that had taken him down there back to Berea to have Paul and Timothy or to have Timothy and Silas come on down and meet him in Athens. Well, I don't know which way the wind was blowing when they went back either, but they had to make that same trip back again and then Paul or Silas and Timothy had to come that 200 miles again down. So Paul was there in Athens by himself for quite a while. I would guess maybe a month, month and a half with all that traveling back and forth through those islands. And the, I, don't, I don't know the conditions of the sea there. I'm sure that there were sailors that made those trips on a regular basis that knew the, the shallow waters and knew the wind patterns and, and all of that. But still, it took time. And we, we think, well, he just took him to Athens. Well, we think, think nothing of driving to Denver, but we have to plan for that. And take, it takes time to do it. And, and uh, each, each of us has traveled and know, knows what kind of, kind of trouble that traveling can be. And so here was Paul down in Athens waiting for Timothy and Silas. And he, he sent them back with word to say, get, get those guys down here, with, have them come down as fast as possible. Well, as fast as possible might take a while. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. 
They had idols and temples and shrines and, and whatnot everywhere. Statues and, and all these different gods that they worshipped. And this was a... It's like going through a museum looking at all these different gods and whatever. And Paul was upset in his heart. His spirit was stirred when he saw that they were wholly given to idolatry. This is the way the people uh, lived. Now, I'm, with your permission, I would like to read out of the Weymouth translation. I, it gives a... Uh, if anyone has an objection to that, this, the reason I'm doing this, this is the New Testament in modern speech. At least it brought it up into the 19th century instead of the... We, we're here in the 21st century, so we, they didn't know anything about uh, a mouse not being a rodent, <laughs> you know, but a thing that was attached to your, uh, your computer. They didn't have any idea what a computer was. So anyway, I would like us to start reading here. And with this... Uh, Paul's here in Athens and he starts talking with people. First he goes to the synagogue there in Athens and he reasons with the Jews about all, all of these idols that are here and says, this is a deplorable situation. And he talks to people there in the marketplace and talks to the, the Greeks that were there. Whoever was selling things, he says, we need, you know, this is not good. So I'm going to begin reading there in verse 16 in the Weymouth. He says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was stirred within him. When he noticed that the city was full of idols, so he had discussions in the synagogue with the Jews and other worshipers, and in the marketplace day after day with those whom he happened to meet there. So he, he talked to everybody he met about these idols. A few of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also encountered him, and some of them asked, what has this beggarly babbler to say? He, they didn't see, see, this was a city that was known, Athens was known for its wisdom for its teachers for its uh, this was a scholarly center of the world at that time Athens Greece you know we we think of a lot of the sciences we think of geometry and mathematics was there these sciences uh, medicine and was another science that was but the the teachers, the philosophy, philosophy is another one. These, these Stoics and, and uh, Epicureans, these were philosophies in the Greek culture. And so they encountered Paul there. But the interesting thing about Athens is that their recreation was hearing something new, some new development in the world. They... They thought they 
knew just about everything at that time, and so if there was something new, they wanted to hear about it. And these uh, Stoics and Epicureans that heard Paul said, hey, this is, this is a new thing. He says, but they, I don't know how they, uh, how they approached Paul. He says, what is this beggarly babbler to say? What has he got to say? We, beggarly babbler? I don't know. Or Anyway, he was, maybe it was a, a rib at him, like <laughs> he hadn't got much to say. We've got all the smart people here in Athens. And so what does this guy have to say? I mean, he's new here. He, we don't know who he is. But they, they kind of put him down. And so he, but the Apostle Paul, and, and this is where, this is one of the reasons I went to the Weymouth. In the King James, it, in giving Paul's reply, uh, they, they said that Paul um, said that they were too, what, what, but they were too, not religious, but they were too, um, What's the word I'm looking for here? Let me look at that. Um, man, I'm in the wrong chapter there. Um, is that they were too superstitious? I don't think the Apostle Paul used that term personally. And this is why I went to the women. So let me read on here. They said, what is this beggarly babbler to say? His business, said others, seems to be to cry up some new foreign gods. So they were used to lots of gods. They said, oh, this is some new foreign god. We, that seems to be what he's saying. This was because he had been telling the gospel of Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus. Now the Areopagus was a an amphitheater here on Mars Hill. This was the center of Athens. This was the center of their knowledgeable people. And so this is an invitation. They took him up there. Now, not many people got invited to speak at that amphitheater, okay? So the Apostle Paul was given an opportunity to speak to the most scholarly assembly anywhere in the known world at that time. And they said, we want to know what you're talking about. We want you to come up here and explain this to us. Now, Paul was an educated man. He spoke good Greek. He spoke other languages as well. And so when he got this invitation, he knew he'd better make it good, and he knew they weren't going to stand around and listen to him for a long time. So 
he put this in very concise words. He didn't make any bones about it. He came right to the point. And we'll see that as, as I read through here. Uh, they took him and brought him up to the Areopagus, asking, May we be told what this new thing of yours is? For the things you are saying sound strange to us. We should therefore like to be told exactly what they mean. Hmm. They were being polite about it. And so Paul, well, again, here in verse 21, it says, For all the Athenians and their foreign visitors used to devote their whole leisure to telling or listening to the latest new thing. They wanted to hear something new. They thought they had all, they had pegged everything down as best that they could, but anything new, they wanted to hear it. This was their recreation. This was their pleasure in life. They didn't have television. They didn't have bloggers. You know, this was where they came together to hear something new, something different. Some, some new development in the world. So Paul, taking his stand in the middle of the Areopagus, spoke as follows. Now that, this, here's Paul's moment. This is the moment of truth for Christianity. They said, we want to hear about this. What does this mean? What, what is your purpose in, in coming here and stirring up the Jews the way you have? And Paul, listen to, here Paul is being very polite, and I, I believe he was very polite when he spoke. He just about had to be, okay? Men of Athens, I perceive that you are in every respect remarkably religious. <laughs> he was being nice about it. I think they understood what he meant by it, but they, he was being nice. For as I passed along, I observed your objects of worship. I found also an altar bearing the inscription to an unknown God. <laughs> you don't know this one. So you're covering all the bases. I said, well, we've, we've got a God of, of grain. We've got one to fertility. We've got one for the stars, one for this, one for that. You know, they had all kinds of gods there. But here was, they, they were covering this base and said, this is the unknown God. We don't know who this one is. Paul says, I know who he is. This is the one you need to pay attention to. What therefore you in your ignorance revere, I now proclaim to you. You put this one up there because you didn't know who he was, but I'm going to proclaim who he is to you. The God who made the universe and everything in it, he being Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in sanctuaries built by men, nor is he ministered to by human hands as though he needed anything, but he himself gives to all men life and breath and all things. He's the one who's given you everything you've got. He doesn't need your help. He's the God of the universe. Nothing that you see 
would be there if it wasn't for this God. He is the one you need to pay attention to. He caused to spring from one forefather people of every race for them to live on the whole surface of the earth and mark out for them their appointed periods and the limits of their settlements. So he says, he put them on the earth from one forefather, speaking of Adam here. They, but he said, all, all men have sprung from one forefather. And God is the one who put them where they are and established the limits of where they could settle that they might seek God if perhaps they could grope for him and find him. Yes, though he is not far from any one of us, for it is him we live and, for it is in him that we live and move and have our being. As in fact, some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. This was quoting Greek poets Paul was a a scholar. He knew about the Greek poetry. Since then, we are God's offspring. We ought not to imagine that his nature resembles gold or silver or stone or anything sculptured by the art and inventive faculty of man. You can't build an image that identifies God. Nothing. Even the woman at the well in chapter 4 of John said, God is, Jesus told the woman there, God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Your heart has to be turned to God. You can't build some, some edifice, some building, some statue, some artwork that would identify God. There is no way. The inventive faculty of man can't explain God. (laughs) Those times of ignorance God viewed with indulgence. Times of ignorance. That's a thing of the past now. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent seeing that he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness in the person of a man whom he has destined for this work, giving assurance. A a reason for faith is that word assurance. Giving assurance of this to all mankind, raising him from the dead. Having raised Jesus from the dead was God's way of saying, of identifying the one that he sanctioned or that he uh, authorized. Jesus is the one that God, the Heavenly Father, the creator of all things, authorized. When Jesus rose from the dead, God put his stamp on him and said, He's mine. Hear him. He's the one you need to hear. God gave 
that reason for having faith when he raised Jesus from the dead. We need to see that. I mean, he was talking in plain language to these Greeks, in Greek, by the way. He told them in their own language that this is exactly what God has done, and they understood that. When they heard Paul speak of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff, but others said, we will hear you again on that subject. We want to hear more about that. That's important to us. Some did not believe, the scoffers. And there were plenty of scoffers among the, the Greeks. Uh, another place in the scripture says that to the Greeks, faith in God is foolishness. And they, that's kind of the way they felt about it. But some believed. Some were called out as we have been called out to join the church that God established through Jesus Christ. Could you imagine having to, having to serve hundreds of gods or thousands of gods? And, you know, we, we think about in terms of just one, but having thousands. I work with someone that is, that is Hindu, and <laughs> they talked about they, when they got married that they, their parents didn't say they were married until they were Truly married until they were recognized by all ten. Let's just say ten thousand Indian gods. And I said I couldn't imagine. I thought to myself I couldn't imagine the 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 impossibility of pleasing ten thousand gods. Um, I mean, when according to the scripture we can't please our God in the flesh. That's right. But only in Christ. So, you know, can you imagine just trying to please ten thousand gods in the flesh, and we can't physically please one God in the flesh. Well, you know, Paul brought the solution to that problem. He said, you've got all these gods up here. You're, you're worshiping all these different gods. But he, the unknown God, the one that you don't know, is the one that you need to serve. He's the real God. These others are fakes. They're the imagination of a man's mind. And so they, he told them about the resurrection from the dead. And some wanted to hear more on that subject. They're, aren't you interested in that? All of us are. We're, that's why we're here, to hear of that resurrection from, from the dead. That reason for hope, that reason for faith, that assurance that given of God when Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we're here, because of Jesus. But some said, nah, wait a minute. Raising from the dead, nobody does that. But others said, we want to hear more about this. This is exciting to us. We want to hear. So Paul went away from them and a few, however, attached themselves to him and believed, among them being Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and some others. So a member of the council, the council on here in the Areopagus was somebody. 
He was a leader there at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. And so was a very respected man. And I don't know Damaris by name, but they weren't, these two were not alone. Others followed the Apostle Paul. A few attached themselves to him and believed. We need to attach ourselves to Jesus and believe. That's our hope. He is the one that we have our hope in. And I hope that this has been a blessing to you. It has been to me to, to study this. I, those that are preachers, preachers or teachers get, get to study and, and look at all these different aspects. But there's one aspect that's important, and that's that Jesus died for you and for me. He, he is the one sent from God, the God who created the universe and everything that you have ever seen, ever, or ever will see. God created it, allowed it to be. Now, we may see some interesting things in our lifetime. Jesus may return. We're looking forward to that. It may be in your lifetime and mine. And I... I look forward to that, and I'm sure you do. But there are going to be some changes made, and God is the one who's going to make those changes. We need to be following him when those changes are made. This resurrection from the dead is your resurrection from the dead by the power of God. That's the only power that can do that. We need to be ready on that day. When, when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. You're out of time then. Time's up. Be ready when that happens. Thank you. push all the buttons and get everything rolling. <laughs> well, it's good to be here this morning. We missed, missed everybody last week. Uh, the church out there in Arkansas send their love. Um, it was good to, to be there. I think there was about eight churches represented there in all. Um, we had probably, I would say at least 100, 100 folks, if not more. Um, the building was packed with very little sitting space. So uh, it was good to be back in Arkansas, I won't say home because home is here. So um, it was good to see some of my family uh, there. Uh, both of my parents attended, so I got to see them and hug their necks to my grandmother. So remember them. Uh, uh, my grandmother lost one of her brothers this week. I think I sent out the group text this week. So remember um, my, my family there and be with them in this time of mourning. Uh, it was quite a shock, so it was an unexpected. He was in bad health, but he it was unexpected, so um, remember them this week. Uh, well, we'll turn with, uh, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. Certainly it's good to have our visitors with us. Um, I will admit that I am terrible with names sometimes, so y'all forgive me. Uh, it was Kathy and 
Fred. Okay, Kathy and Fred. So y'all bear with, I apologize, bear with me. Um, and then I'm glad, glad to have Teresa and Jet and Briar with us and Juanita this morning. And um, I'm glad to have Alan with us this morning. Alan, forgive me, I know your name, but sometimes it just leaves, it just departs. We're glad to have all you with us this morning. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, we're continuing through the book of 2 Corinthians this morning. Um, as we've made some slow progress last Sunday, they got to hear me preach on this just a little bit. So um, I figured I would share with you all some of it. So first, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. It says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we thus judge that if, no one, di uh, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that that which lived should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Wherefore henceforth, who, when no man after the flesh, yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are becoming new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us to him the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God is in Christ, was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing therefore trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be you reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for uh, be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now here we have uh, again Brother Paul writing to the church at Corinth. This is the second epistle there. He says there, knowing no man after the flesh, we know him after the flesh. Brother Paul stated that he knew him after he had risen from the dead. Who's he? Christ. He said he knew him. Even though Paul said he was apostle out of due season, he saw Jesus there on the road to Damascus when he was struck with his blindness, wasn't he? We all know the account there that he was going up to uh, Damascus to persecute the church. But in a ironic twist, he becomes a part of the church there. Jesus asked him, why do you persecute me? Well, if we're in Christ, then we are part of him. So why, why, why was he persecuting the church there? So it humbled Paul to the point where he could be changed into what God would have him to do. He was made a new creature. No longer Saul, but he became Paul. In this same process here, the same is for us. When we are baptized into the body of Christ, we become a new creature. The old should pass away. We shouldn't resurrect a dead body and drag it around with us every day. I know that picture is kind of a, 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 an odd picture to think of, but we don't drag around dead bodies every day. So we put the old man down when we come into the body of Christ. Paul's instruction there to them was what? He says, I, we, didn't, we didn't know Jesus that way. 
And he says, Yea, though we know, have known Christ after the flesh, yet not henceforth know we him no more. Why? Jesus was no longer in the flesh. He was no longer with him. He went to be with the Father. So that the opportunity might arise for them to be made into disciples and students of the word, that they might serve through Christ. This was God's intention. He says, all things of, uh, are of God, and which are reconci uh, reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given up to us the ministry of reconciliation. Y'all have heard me preach this time, blue in the face. What is reconciling? Reckoning something. It matches up, doesn't it? We've talked about walking with, with the Lord. Walking with the Lord means to walk alongside, so you match, you, you match up. How do we do that? By putting down the flesh and taking on the attributes of Christ. That was Paul's encouragement here, was for them to be reconciled to God through Christ. Going back in the first Corinthians, when we looked at that in, in weeks and months previous, was that the church there had struggles. What church doesn't? He says, I can't feed you the meat of the word because you need you, you, you need the milk. You, you haven't moved beyond these problems you have, the divisions, the strifes, the envies, the, the problems that you had. The point being is you can't be one body of Christ if you're feuding and divided against one another. So the intention was for Paul to get their attention so that they can be reconciled together in Christ. And here we get to this picture here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 where he's talking about just exactly what Christ was bringing about to do. And just as like Sister Rhonda joining us today, she's reconciled to the body of Christ here. She's a part of us. He goes on there, he says, To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing therefore trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What a wonderful thing that the Lord doesn't impute those trespasses against us. While in Christ we have that wonderful opportunity. He also talks about another scripture about not giving opportunity to, to, to sin. Why? We've put that down. We're putting on Christ, or at least we should be. The other scripture says that, um, as you say, God is not mocked whatever a man sows, he reaps, right? Whether of the flesh, the flesh, or of the spirit, the spirit. The Lord is not fooled in those things. So let us take some honest introspection into our lives and, and, and see that we are reconciling ourselves to Christ daily. Our service and our obedience to God is a daily thing, not just a one-time opportunity. Let's look at Revelations chapter 21. Revelations chapter 21, chapter, uh, chapter 21, verse 3. 
He says, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away the tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part of the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. <clears throat> Some people find revelations quite terrifying, but it's only terrifying for those that don't endure Verse 3 there, chapter 21, says, A great voice from heaven, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. What's he talking about? He's talking about the kingdom. He's talking about the new city and the new earth there, and he's talking about God will be with them. And those people that are there will be, what? His people. And it talks about the, the doing away of the things that we encounter in this flesh. Death, sorrow, crying, pain. He says, for the former things are passed away. There will be no more of those things. But folks, I'll have to tell you this. It is a little difficult to get to that point. Do we ever get a good, a good uh, uh, produce from the garden if we don't do the labor? We have to put some work in. It requires that we give up of ourselves autonomy in this flesh and we put on Christ. We become servants of Christ. Bound with one another in Christ specifically. The mentioning here by the writer here in Revelations is that these are the things that will change according to God and how his plan is for the future. Somebody asked me, what is the kingdom going to be like? I said, well, it gives us some description of Revelations, but there's a reason that 90% of the book is written for what we do in this life. And the reason why the other 10% is about what happens in the life to come. That 10% is what happens, the reward of the life that we've lived here on this earth. Whether for Christ or not. Galatians chapter 6. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. That's where we'll start. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7. He says, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. There's that verse again. For whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, and he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap everlasting life. 
And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto those that are of the household of faith. Stop there for just a minute. A lot of the world would have you believe that the only good that happens between the folks in the church is between the folks in the church and not anyone else. There are a lot of folks out there that have given the true church a bad name. There are a lot of people out there that go out and scream and yell and cuss and fuss at people and say that they're godly people. But their lives speak quite the, quite the opposite of that, don't they? I'll wax a little preachy for a minute, but the things that the Bible condemns, all the alternative lifestyles, the living with your with your significant other before marrying, having children out of wedlock, those things do happen. The Lord is responsible for judging those actions, not us. The church is not responsible for that. Only God is. Our duty is to show that there is opportunity and there is love in Christ for those who would have it. It does not give us a badge to go around being the police and demeaning others, arguing with them. What does that do? It leads to further ungodliness, doesn't it? it? Gives people an opportunity to blaspheme God's name. Those people claim to be of God and they go out and they, they lambast these people for being wrong. Let the scripture and let the Lord do the work of the convicting. We can't do that. The only thing that we can do is encourage them to do the right thing. I don't, can't tell you how many times I've had this conversation with someone and I say, you know, I, I don't agree with your lifestyle, but I'm not going to mistreat you. Through that opportunity, it opens the door for us to have a discussion with them about what the scripture says. And what the Lord expects of people. Also gives us an opportunity to show others what the Lord has changed in our lives. After all, the scripture's written to, not written to well people, is it? We come here to be healed together in Christ, don't we? I always use the statement that, uh, Houses are not meant to be mausoleums. They're meant to be lived in. Well, the same thing here. We're not, we're not a perfect people. We're not going to be pretty and put together all the time. Well, what's the point? To acknowledge that and to look to the Lord for the guidance and the understanding to change our lives. Because there is freedom in Christ. He gives us the opportunity to address those things. Let's look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, but after that kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man, uh, toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy, Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. 
that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying, and these things I will, that they'll affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men, but avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. A man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject, knowing that he that as such is subverted and sin, sinneth, but condemneth himself. So, sort of the same thing mentioned there in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 11 there. So it's through the kindness of our God and love that he provided an opportunity for Christ to make just that, an opportunity for us to not have never known him. This is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. He goes on there, which that's, there's a semicolon there, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it's not by our righteous works, but it's through what? Through the sacrifice of Christ, through the ability for the Holy Spirit to comfort and to renew us and to strengthen us that we're delivered, right? That's what it says. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Folks, our only hope is in Christ. Being made a new creature and putting down the old man is a continual, ongoing, progressive action. I know that's, I'm not an English major, but I know when an active present participle is there. It signifies a continuous action through time. But he goes on there from that saying, not he says, This this is a faithful saying, these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable. But then he goes on to address just a few things there at the end. Avoid foolish questions. Genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are profitable. We know at that particular time that they had a lot of Jewish brethren that were trying to take some of these Gentile believers that had come into covenant back into the old law through circumcision and the observance of the law. But we see throughout these epistles that Paul wrote and through these other brethren that he was trying to persuade them not to do that because it takes them back under bondage. Encouraging that, that there is freedom in Christ, that they don't have to observe those things. Those things were fulfilled at Christ's death, burial, and resurrection so that there might be new life. Abundant life. Sometimes we men like to think that we're very, very cunning and smart. And we like to make rules for ourselves, rules that we sometimes don't keep ourselves. You think that sounds unfamiliar? The Pharisees did the same thing. They set for themselves little extra laws that the Lord 
didn't write out. And they were very, very litigious about keeping those and, and being very specific. But Jesus chided them on multiple occasions. And one of the things he said is, you, you tie up these new converts with all these rules. And he says, you yourself aren't so much as willing to lift a little finger to do these things. So basically, in summation, Jesus was saying, if you can't uphold these things, then why are you giving these, folk, these new folks that? He says, you're just going to kill them. And to much to their chagrin, they did. A lot of people. And we don't want to be responsible for that same thing. That's why Christ calls us to freedom. Being a new creature. We're not bound by those same things. But yet, even so many hundreds and thousands uh, thousand years later, we're, we do sometimes come across those things more often than we'd like to admit, I'm sure. So the warning was very clear. Avoid those things which lead to, that are not profitable. what otherwise that person when they continue to do those things after the rebuke they continue in it it says he condemns himself I don't know about y'all but I don't want to be that person I don't want any one of y'all to be that let's look at James chapter 1 James chapter 1 and verse 16 He says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no vari uh, variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he, as the word of truth, that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let us uh, every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God, wherefore lay apart all filthiness, all superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. But be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in the glass. For he beholdeth himself, and goeth his way, and straightway he forgetteth the manner of which manner of man he is, or was, excuse me. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. If any man among you seemeth to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart, this man's religion is vain. He goes on there, pure, and, pure religion undefiled before God and the Father is this, visiting the fatherless and the widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. What did he say there? Put away sin from yourselves. It's not like toys. We put them in a box and we pull them out and play with them whenever we want to. He says, put it away. says, do not err, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. There's no variableness. There's no shadow of turning. There's no difference there. 
in Christ. He provides those things. Don't err. He says, of his own will beget he us with the word of truth that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creature. Typically when they observed Passover and of course in the New Testament, the Lord's Supper, they, what they drank of were the first fruits. That was the best of the vine. The first, the first crop of grapes, I guess for lack of a better word, that were pressed down and were sifted and all the all the goodness. That was the first, the freshest of the fruit. I think it's no mistake here that he says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Why? We're the best, we're supposed to be the best of the crop, aren't we? We're doing his work, aren't we? We should be. As the Lord's people, we minister to others so that they might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, right? The first fruits was an offering as well. I don't profess myself to know a lot about the offerings in the Old Testament, but that was significant there. It says, Wherefore, my beloved, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Why do you think he says swift to hear? I've said this a million times probably. I'm sure you all probably get tired of me saying it. But there's a reason God gave us two ears and one mouth. It's to listen twice as much as we speak. He also tells us in another part to speak as the oracles of God. Speaking only when spoken to, right? I think it also signifies we are to be careful with how we deliver the word of God to others and how we live our lives because we are instruments for him. He says, but we cause ourselves quite amount of difficulty when we speak first and listen later, right? It doesn't accomplish anything, does it? I was reminded at work the other day, somebody was talking to me and I surmised what they were saying, and I, and I said it before they were finished. And the person told me, wait a second, I'm not done yet. <laughs> and I, went, I apologized. I said, I'm sorry. I should listen a little longer, shouldn't I? Because I missed a key piece of information that they were trying to tell me. So there's a reason why the Lord gives us those things. Listen. Be slow to speak. Be slow to anger. Why? Our anger, in our anger and in our unhappiness, we tend to demonstrate or indicate something counter to God. We get upset very easily and are vengeful or wrathful. Those things aren't, aren't things that the Lord finds acceptable before him. Leave room for the wrath of God, that's what the scripture says. So we're not to be a vengeful people, but rather a loving and slow to anger people. He says, for the wrath of men worketh not the righteousness of God. So think before we get angry next time. It happens. We're, we, we do have flesh still. 
But the purpose of this scripture is to admonish us and to call, to call these things to mind so that we can be better prepared and look to the Lord for our guidance and understanding. Laying aside those things which are unaccepted of the Lord, recognizing this freedom that he's provided us as a new creature. He says, therefore, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. But whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Hmm. So, putting into practice those things which we read, which we study. Being obedient to God not being the person that just rushes about and looks at the mirror and then runs off and we forget who we are. You think that's the reason why the Lord tells us to study to show ourselves approved? Absolutely. You think that's the reason why he tells us to come together and, and encourage and exhort and rebuke and all these things in the body of Christ that he expects of his people? Absolutely. That's why he created it. Look at 1 John chapter 3 and we'll come to a close. First John chapter 3 and verse 1. And it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew not him. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doeth not yet, excuse me, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that we shall appear, and we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth Sin transgresseth us off of the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither knoweth him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil, and the devil sinneth from the beginning, and for this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whosoever doth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. For this is the message that ye have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. This is not as Cain, who was the wicked one, slew his brother, and wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil, and his brother's righteous. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death into life, because we love the brethren, and he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and ye know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive that we love God, but the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, 
and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's goods and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then we have confidence towards Christ. I'll stop there. So I said, practice not sin. He that committeth sin, that gives the idea that you're practicing it continually. One of the things taught as a, that I was taught as a, a, a small child in church was that that TH there ending there signified a continuance of something. Believeth, same thing, continuance there. I feel like sometimes the King James Version did a poor job of translating the, the, the continuation of that faith and believing there. But that's why the Lord gives us a mind and the heart to study his word. And he can reveal those things to us. But he goes on there. He says, practicing not sin continually. You say, well, well, we sin on a daily basis. Yes, we do. The point is we acknowledge our sin and we know better of it. Not to perpetuate the cycle. Those that perpetuate it, he says what? Children of the devil. They're made known. We can't love our brethren. Same thing. He gives us the example of Cain. We know that example very well in the scripture. We use that, that account there in the scripture to teach our children how to love their siblings, right? The greater demonstration is to love those who are not our flesh siblings, but our brothers and sisters in Christ. That says a lot about who we are. He says there, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not, whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither know him. Well, that was the works there of Cain. When, when the Lord came to him, he gave him an opportunity. He says, why is your countenance so downcast? Why is it, why is it low? He says, if you thou do us well, <laughs> will their countenance be lifted? Cain's response, he was probably kicking the dust at that particular point, going, oh, you know. The Lord gave him an opportunity. He had the temptation there, but, you know, the Lord also provided him a way of escape. And he didn't do it. Same is true for all of us. We have a means of escape, but we need to hold to it. The admonition there is that we become a new creature not perfecting the old creature in its ways. You think that's why a lot of those Hebrew brethren had a lot of trouble? They wanted to hold on to the old things. I was like, you see, I'm making something new. Jesus is the master of the sheepfold. You can come through this way. That's the only way you're going to get to me. But they still didn't understand that. Many of them did. But not a lot of them made it, did they? Many of them were persecutors of Jesus and sought to kill him. 
Did they accomplish their, their, their mission? Yes, they did. But they didn't realize that that wasn't the end of that. And then you have Paul. Paul was the way he was, but yet God saw fit to change him. Someone who didn't, who didn't seem like they were changeable, did they? Scripture didn't lie when it says he asked us to do good to all men, especially of the household of faith. So it's not just doing to one another, but it's doing to those outside who need to see Jesus more than anything. We need to use that opportunity and the things that he's given us here in this book and the way we encourage one another to manifest that to all men. A lot of good things that we talk, that they talked about at the fellowship meeting there at Guiding Light in Arkansas, that was one of them. We're called to do a work. What kind of work are we doing? Are we sitting on our hands and on our knees doing these things towards our brethren? Or are we practicing them towards all men? That's the true test right there. Did Jesus go and sit in the synagogue all day and teach and preach to those? Or did he go out and demonstrate it to all men? I already said that he didn't make them come to him. He went to them. Is that not the same expectation for us? Is Jesus in us? Absolutely. That challenges our perspective as the servants of the Lord that we change the way we function. I'm not saying that we change the way the scripture teaches. We can't do that. That's, that's a, that's a non-negotiable. But we ought to be open-minded enough that we can reach out to others. Scripture talks about the man that come in and sat down and goodly apparel, and he was esteemed. And the one that come in that was had stained garments and didn't look that good, and he was told, "You sit down here at my feet. You don't sit up here with me." That wasn't the way the Lord wanted it to function. He wanted us to go and to take care of those and to, and to minister to those because how else could they see Jesus in us, the hope of glory? That's all I have for you this morning. I thank you for your kind attention. And joyous day in the house of the Lord as we get to come together and serve him, especially have all of our visitors with us. I hope that you've been encouraged by this as well. You don't have a home church. I hate to use that word home church, but if you don't have a church that you're joined to, I encourage you to find one to join to that, to, that preaches the truth. Because days are few and full of evil. We have an opportunity to serve the Lord now. And the Lord is coming. We don't know when he will be here, but we certainly have the expectation and the, and the opportunity to serve him now while he can be found. And I hope we would do that. Again, thank you for your attention. We'll all stand to be dismissed.